from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council. Welcome to Washington Watch on this Friday afternoon edition. I am Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins. I'm your Director of Partnership and today's host, and we've got a lot to cover today. Yesterday, the House of Representatives debated a resolution that would extend the deadline for ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment, first introduced in the 70s. Now, even after a 10-year deadline extension to 1982, the ERA failed to win ratification by two-thirds of the states before the deadline expired. But in an end run to codify abortion and ensure taxpayers fund it, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and House Democrats are urging removal of the deadline, even though liberal Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself has declared the ERA dead. I'll have Congresswoman Virginia Fox of North Carolina on to discuss. In my second segment, Congresswoman Jackie Wilarski of Indiana gave an impassioned speech on the House floor yesterday before a moment of silence honoring the 2,200 victims of abortionist Dr. Ulrich Klopfer. Representative Wilarski is also the sponsor of H.R. 4934, the Dignity for Aborted Children Act. I'll have her on to discuss why the bill is so essential. In my third segment... Our senior fellow for policy studies, Peter Sprigg, joins me to break down two recent studies addressing whether puberty-blocking drugs make transgender kids less likely to commit suicide, as well as a separate medical study addressing whether the evidence supports gender transition procedures for minors. And at the end of our hour, I'll continue my discussion with Peter And we'll be joined by David Clausen, FRC's Director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview. David will help me break down a recent Vice article with a jaw-dropping headline, The World's Largest Religions Support and Sometimes Require Abortion. A couple of reminders for you today. Go to our podcast at TonyPerkins.com. And we can be found wherever you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, Apple, Stitcher. We've got a number of resources that will make this episode come alive for you. Blogs that our staffers have written, links to studies, and even our fetal dignity map authored by FRC, as well as information about FRC's upcoming Israel trip. But first... Let's talk about the Trojan horse that is the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, yesterday, the House pushed through a bill to remove a four-decade-old deadline on ratifying the Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution. With Virginia's recent ratification of the ERA, many on the left want to keep pushing as they have 38 out of 50 states. But that does not take into account that five states have withdrawn their ratification. And even Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg says the effort is too late. Her quote, a number of states have withdrawn their ratification. If you count a latecomer on the plus side, how can you disregard states that said we've changed our minds? Representative Debbie Lesko, another ally for the pro-life movement on the Hill, also indicated that the ERA would be used by pro-abortion groups to underwrite and undermine pro-life laws. 
Our Petrina Mosley has an op-ed right now up at townhall.com saying the Equal Rights Amendment is a fraud using women as a prop. And conservatives like those of us here at FRC have no problem telling you that we believe the ERA is a Trojan horse. The House Judiciary marking up H.J. Res. 79 will actually get to a floor vote. And because it removes this congressional deadline, it seeks to redo what the Democrats were unable to do initially in 1982. It will not only create a right to on-demand abortions in all 50 states, it would allow for unrestricted taxpayer-funded abortions through all nine months of pregnancy. Now, whether or not you believe Nancy Pelosi's assertion that it's an explanation or an excuse, she believes abortion is the excuse conservatives are using, we have a little bit of proof from the group NARAL itself, the National Abortion Rights Action League, who stated, quote, With its ratification, the ERA would reinforce the constitutional right to abortion by clarifying that these sexes have equal rights, which would require judges to strike down anti-abortion laws because they violate both the constitutional right to privacy and sexual equality, end quote. So lest you think this is about anything other than abortion, you would be mistaken. In fact, the ACLU has encouraged lawyers to use state ERAs to strike down restrictions on abortion, such as parental consent laws. They've also filed briefs in Hawaii, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Connecticut, arguing that since an abortion procedure is only performed on women, while a state's denial of taxpayer-funded abortion should be considered sex discrimination under their state's ERA. And in fact, pro-abort groups have won cases in New Mexico and Connecticut in which the state ERAs were upholding that particular notion of abortion. Now, we offered compromise, those of us who are pro-life organizations. Many of us came to the table offering compromise language that is abortion neutral, but the ERA advocates will not have it. In fact, they've rejected language in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and in federal Congress, adding weight to the assertion that proponents are set on using the ERA to claim a right to snuff out the lives of the unborn. Now, the ERA does nothing that it automatically does not protect in federal law. In fact, this very brief 52-word amendment does not even mention the word woman, instead prohibiting, quote, denial or abridging rights on account of sex, end quote. Now, in 1972, sex meant biological sex, male or female. But many of the hard-fought victories for women's rights in that era used also the term sex. The Equal Pay Act of 1963, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Equal Employment Opportunity Act of 1972, the Federal Minimum Wage Act of 1974, and the Pregnancy Non-Discrimination Act of 1964. We are guaranteed these rights already by virtue of those pieces of federal legislation and the 5th and 14th Amendment to the Constitution. This is, to begin with, an unnecessary 
piece of legislation. In addition, it would provide unfettered access to abortion and guarantee that United States taxpayers would have to fund it. But even to this point, the left is unwilling to define sex in biological terms. Those who, of you who listen to Washington Watch understand precisely where we are in the battle for maintaining biological reality and the understanding that there only are two sexes, male and female, and there is not a gender spectrum. In fact, very soon the Supreme Court will determine just that. The word sex does not incorporate gender identity, but that has not prevented the left from making that precise argument. In fact, it's already led to absurd results. We are allowing biological men's men to claim access to private women's only areas, shelters, prisons, restrooms, locker rooms, showers. It has allowed them to infiltrate and dominate women's only sports, women's shelters. Those arguing for the ERA certainly understand that and intend to apply a vacuous, meaningless term, sex, because they already anticipate the way current legislation and political discourse and controversy is trending. Well, sex, of course, will just mean gender identity as well. And we have no further to look than the Equality Act, thank you, Nancy Pelosi, in which gender identity is sought to be a protected Class. So while pr- trying to protect abortion under the guise of equality for women, the ERA would actually erase women. Jerry Nadler, Representative Jerry Nadler, New York Dem and chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, stressed, quote, that we are on the brink of history and no deadline should stand in the way. Obviously having no problem moving from impeachment to another constitutional morass or ratification of this particular constitutional amendment. The measure cleared 232 to 183 with five Republicans actually joining Democrats. It is unlikely to pass the Senate, which would be the next step on the ERA's journey. And if it did, would make the ERA the 28th amendment to the Constitution citing Virginia's ratification last month as the key step to crossing the three-fourths threshold, not taking into consideration that five states have subsequently withdrawn. Again, Bader Ginsburg herself renewed her criticism, first declaring years ago that the ERA was dead, and as recently as this Monday, renewing the criticism, saying that while she supports the ERA, the backers will need to start again. Quote, I would like to see a new beginning, end quote, she said. She pointed out while she was at Georgetown earlier this week that while Virginia claims to be the 38th state, five states have indeed revoked their ratification, cutting the number to 33. It would be unfair to count late ratification by some states and ignore wholly de-ratification by others. Representative Sensenbrenner, a Wisconsin Republican, said that since it governs 
ratification of a constitutional amendment, and it takes two-thirds of votes in the House and Senate to propose amendments. The ERA should have taken two-thirds votes to approve extending the deadline itself. So there's even an argument that the process of extension of the deadline is constitutionally impermissible. So Democrats, touting the historic nature of Thursday's vote, saying it would clear the way for better pay, better jobs, better protections against anything negative, discriminatory, disparate in the treatment between men and women, forget the fact that while we have equal rights under the law already guaranteed, as it turns out, This is a duplicative federal enforcement of what already exists with the two Trojan horse elements of gender identity and expansion of rights to abortions. That is why, listeners, conservative women like me and like those of us here at Family Research Council wholeheartedly oppose the Equal Rights Amendment, because while it sounds good in theory... And while we are equal under the law, we are most certainly not the same. While she said it had nothing to do with abortion, Mrs. Pelosi saying it's an excuse, not a reason. We listeners, and hopefully you now as well, know otherwise. Well, coming up next on this Friday edition of Washington Watch, a very impassioned moment of silence was held on the House floor yesterday to honor 2,200 victims of abortion. Coming up next, I've got Congresswoman Jackie Wilarski herself about the Dignity for Aborted Children Act. We'll be right back. In the U.S., the rate of chemical abortions is at an all-time high. This increase is being driven by the abortion industry, which wants abortion pills available through the pharmacy and the mail, making do-it-yourself abortions the future of the abortion industry. Abortion advocates once claimed that legal abortion would prevent back-alley abortions, but the health complications that often result from chemical abortion are eerily similar to those of back-alley abortions. For more information, visit frc.org slash chemicalabortion. China has become one of the most totalitarian states in human history. The Chinese Communist Party restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale, targeting those of every faith. The Chinese Communist Party's consistent abuses of human rights prove that it cannot be treated just like any other country. The United States must address these violations in their trade and diplomatic dealings with China. For more information about the human rights crisis in China, visit frc.org slash China. What are you reading this winter? Looking for timely and original commentary on human dignity, marriage, and religious liberty? We've got you covered at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts, FRC staff, as well as outside contributors. Read about a wide variety of topics like crimes in the criminal state of China, how Game of Thrones mainstreams sexual exploitation, transgender regret, the rise of the detransitioners, and many more. Stand for truth by staying informed at frcblog.com. What other trip to Israel can you take that combines walking where Jesus walked with meeting today's Israeli leaders? This is Tony Perkins, President of Family Research Council, inviting you to spend an incredible nine days in Israel with me, General Jerry Boykin, and former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman from June the 2nd through the 12th. 
You'll discover the roots of your faith and learn from experts about the geopolitical landscape of the region. For more information, visit TonyPerkins.com or call 844-872-5155. We all need to be lectured sometimes. Welcome back to Washington Watch on this Friday afternoon. Well, yesterday, a very compelling and very beautiful and moving moment of silence transpired in order to honor the 2,400 victims of Indiana abortionist Ulrich Klopfer. The sponsor of the Dignity for Aborted Children Act delivered a speech on the moment of silence. And we'll have her in a second, but let's listen to what she said. I rise today to honor the 2,411 unborn children whose remains were finally laid to rest with dignity yesterday in South Bend, Indiana. These victims of Indiana's most prolific abortionist would be in their late teens now, graduating from high school and entering into college. But their innocent lives were cut short, and they were denied a proper burial. Instead, their remains sat for almost 20 years in a garage, a car trunk, in moldy boxes and styrofoam coolers. Such callous disregard for human life should shake us to the core. Representative Jackie Wilarski of Indiana delivered that impassioned speech. She is the Dignity for Aborted Children Act sponsor, and she joins me now to talk about it all. Welcome to the program, Congresswoman. Hi, thank you so much. I appreciate the invite. Well, I have to tell you, I was absolutely moved by your speech. And I have to tell you, as someone who follows this as part of what we do here at FRC, it amazes me, and I guess I should not be amazed at this point, that we're even having a discussion about needing to provide dignity for 2,400 lives lost right. to abortionist Dr. Ulrich. And I really want to hear what prompted you, and this was introduced originally back in October of last year, what prompted you to introduce your act in the House? Sure. Well, if you remember back in, I want to say it was back last summer, um, Dr. Klopfer had died, and as the family started going through different possessions and those kinds of things, they discovered 2,411 aborted fetuses in jars and formaldehyde all over his basement. They discovered more later in the trunk of his car and these moldy styrofoam packages. And, you know, in, in my days in the Indiana State House, we chased this abortion doctor all over the state of Indiana for 10 years, trying to get him on something to make him accountable because he was a chop shop abortionist. We have wow. women that would die of infection after he was done in their hands. And he would come through the South Bend, Indiana area. When I got the call that they discovered those bodies, I knew that I was going to have to go even one step further and make sure that these abortion doctors, um, you know, provide dignity and respect in different burials or cremation so this never happens again. This is sick, and it should take us to the core. This guy was a monster. So I think a lot of us thought that we had seen the worst of it with Kermit Gosnell in 2010 realizing how recently something like this had transpired really under your right under your nose in Indiana, understanding how bad he was, but not being able to actually demonstrate the proof until these remains were found. You must have been absolutely sickened by the fact that for some reason he kept what appeared to me to be trophies of what he was doing. Right. 
Well, I was sickened by the whole concept of what Klopfer had done for 20 years in my district, and I was sickened by what he did to women all over the Midwest. But when I got that call about what he had done there, I thought to myself, you know, we are we're a depraved nation. And this kind of stuff should shake us to the core. But, but the, the saddest thing about this yesterday was that the reason I was talking about this is because this ERA amendment the Democrats were sponsoring was going to do nothing more than solidify all right. these abortion laws inside the Constitution. And Absolutely. so I was impassioned to basically say, let's be clear about what that bill did, and let's be clear about what's happening with abortion. Let's be clear that now we have to actually follow all the way through and make sure that these aborted babies actually have a place with dignity and and human. But I'll tell you this, there's an illegal abortion clinic right now in South Bend, Indiana, where I live, Mm. that is a chemical abortion facility, and we still have to net in inside of my bill chemical abortions because you know when you go uh, and get a chemical abortion and they send you to a hotel next door to an abortion clinic and you abort that baby it's going right down the toilet into sewage pipes into the water streams into back into human uh, contact again and we still have more to do to try to net this in so this is this is a fight that you know as you know you've been doing this forever but this is a fight this is why we have to have oversight and be vigilant into what these abortion doctors are doing and not doing. In the couple of minutes that we have left, talk to me a little bit about the specifics that this legislation covers. What are some of the requirements encompassed in this bill? Sure. So this goes plays right off of the Indiana bill that has been approved by the Supreme Court. This basically says that, you know, um, an aborted baby would have to either be buried or cremated, and that is at the responsibility of the doctor. And um, I made sure that we have a really tough reporting requirement because if we didn't have a reporting requirement where these abortion docs have to fill out reports and let people know exactly the disposition of these babies, then it would never be able to be enforced. But I wanted to make sure that we can enforce it. We can do it in such a way that the Supreme Court's already passed it and already understands and says yes. So, you know, we're very close. Um, But there's a long road inside of Congress with the Democrats uh, in charge of the House right now and very, very pro-choice. But you know what? Every step we take and and that moment of silence yesterday, I decided when I walked up there, I was going to do that and Mm. took everybody off guard. People were shocked. But you know what? They were so shocked. They actually stood there and bowed their head. And I think it was the first time on the House floor that Congress stood in a moment of silence for those aborted babies as well they should. Oh, wow, that is fabulous. I have to tell you, there is a part of me that also is encouraged by the strict reporting requirements because I can't help but imagine that this will have a detrimental effect on what we know is the underground trafficking in baby parts. If you are held to a strict reporting requirement, you cannot state the law. Are you hopeful that you can get this through a democratically controlled Congress? You know, um, it would take a miracle, but I believe in miracles. And I believe that, you know what, for whatever reason, when we stood there together in a bipartisan way, in a moment of silence before our God, I am telling you anything is possible. And we're going to keep fighting to get this through. Oh, Representative Jackie Wilarski from Indiana, thank you for the excellent work you're doing. We applaud you for the moment of silence and for the sponsorship of this excellent bill. Coming up next, I'm going to talk to FRC's Peter Sprague. Does the science support the necessity of gender transitions for minors? And what does it say about their suicidal ideations? Big questions. We'll talk to Peter right after this. 
Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins. As a reminder, go to TonyPerkins.com. You will find a number of helpful resources, including links to a lot of the things we'll be citing on today's continued programming. Well, science and transgenderism or gender identity, a hot topic. Many of us have called it pseudoscience. There is a tendency to eschew biological reality in favor of a spectrum of gender identities. But two recent studies bear notice, and our senior fellow for policy studies, Peter Sprigg, is here to join me and help me break them down. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. Okay, so the first study that I want to talk about, and you wrote about this in a blog post, was whether... The evidence suggested that transgender or gender transition procedures were necessary. Can you tell me a little bit about what you discovered? Sure. Well, I decided to undertake uh, this sort of examination uh, of the guidelines that are usually cited in support of gender transition procedures in general, and particularly for minors, um, because this is an issue that was has been raised in the debate in South Dakota that just took place in South Dakota over a bill to try to restrict these procedures. Right. Wouldn't prevent a ch- child from having a social transition, from changing their name and their hair and their clothing and so forth, but it would prohibit um, giving puberty-blocking hormones, cross-sex hormones, and gender reassignment surgery to, to a minor, to someone under the age of 16, in the case of the South Dakota bill. And I w- listened to some of the testimony online and so forth. People who opposed this bill, one of the witnesses said, you know, these procedures are very well-supported and evidence-based. And I'm like, that... I'm going to check that out. Is it how strong is the evidence base that Your supposedly good investigatory spirits? Well, which exactly. We, love. we are the Family Research Council, <laughs> yes. so this is the kind of research we do. Right. And you know, I, I mean, I, I often will tell people, I'm not writing academic research, but I can read the academic research and translate it for a lay audience, and that's what I've done. Uh, for uh, with these couple of blog posts that I just posted this week. So I went to these guidelines that have been published by the Endocrine Society. Okay, so endocrinologists are people who are experts in hormones, uh, but they uh, posted these guidelines in 2017. So it's actually not a recent study that I was examining, but it was in response to this recent political debate. And... Um, and they actually profess in the guidelines to uh, that to have followed these evidence-based procedures. It says they they, they uh, used an approach recommended by an international group with expertise in the development and implementation of evidence-based guidelines. There were 24 guidelines that were relevant okay. to the issue of minors. There was one one category that was just for adults, but 24 guidelines. Now they they. The, rec- the guidelines were in three categories. They had um, what they called an ungraded good practice statement, which may, meant just this is our advice, but there's no evidence to support right. it. And then they had what they call a weak recommendation. So they're saying we suggest this, um, but we can't be confident that this is going to be the best thing that's going to result in positive outcomes. And then they have a strong recommendation where they say we, we recommend this, where um, and then they have a rating, though, for each of those of the strength of the evidence, a four-part rating. 
very low, low, moderate, or high quality evidence in support of it. Well, what I found was out of these 24 guidelines, five were these ungraded ones with no evidence. Two were um, weak recommendations with low, very low evidence. Nine were weak recommendations with low evidence. So only a third of them even rose to the, of the guidelines rose to the level of being what they call strong recommendations. But even the strong recommendations, eight of them, two are supported by very low evidence, five supported by low evidence. So, so none that none mixes supported by high the perfect cross-section of high evidence and strong recommendation. Exactly. So we're looking for that as the ideal scientific finding, and that didn't exist in this study. Exactly. We don't have that kind of scientific knowledge about the outcome of um, gender, reass- uh, of gender transition procedures for minors or, or for adults for that matter, but I was focusing specifically on minors. So we know that there is a wave of these vulnerable child protection acts that is sweeping the country. South Dakota really was sort of the tipping point for much of this. This will be an ongoing discussion. If there's one conclusion we can reach from this journal article in the Journal of Endocrinology, what would that be? Well, the conclusion that I reach is these are experimental practices. These are not something that is proven to be the best uh, way of treating gender dysphoria in children. These are fundamentally experimental, but the people who are doing them are not uh, following the protocols that you would normally follow for experimental medicine. And these patients and their parents are not being told that they are being the subject of a medical experiment. That's what I think is really unethical about what's happening. And that's part of the reason we're at, we're encouraging legislators to intervene in an area where normally they wouldn't intervene. So we're going to transition in the next segment from whether or not there is evidence to support the necessity of gender transition services for minors to the question of mental health and suicidal ideations. We hear a lot about the intersection of those two issues, but from what we know, Is there a connection between puberty blockers and whether or not there is a lower risk of suicide? Peter's going to stay with us and help me break it down after the break. We'll be right back. In the U.S., the rate of chemical abortions is at an all-time high. This increase is being driven by the abortion industry, which wants abortion pills available through the pharmacy and the mail, making do-it-yourself abortions the future of the abortion industry. Abortion advocates once claimed that legal abortion would prevent back-alley abortions. But the health complications that often result from chemical abortion are eerily similar to those of back-alley abortions. For more information, visit frc.org slash chemicalabortion. China has become one of the most totalitarian states in human history. The Chinese Communist Party restricts religious practice and oppresses religious minorities on a sweeping scale, targeting those of every faith. The Chinese Communist Party's consistent abuses of human rights prove that it cannot be treated just like any other country. The United States must address these violations in their trade and diplomatic dealings with China. For more information about the human rights crisis in China, visit frc.org slash China. 
What are you reading this winter? Looking for timely and original commentary on human dignity, marriage, and religious liberty? We've got you covered at frcblog.com. The content on our blog is written by our policy experts, FRC staff, as well as outside contributors. Read about a wide variety of topics like crimes in the criminal state of China, how Game of Thrones mainstreams sexual exploitation, transgender regret, the rise of the detransitioners, and many more. Stand for truth by staying informed at frcblog.com. What other trip to Israel can you take that combines walking where Jesus walked with meeting today's Israeli leaders? This is Tony Perkins, President of Family Research Council, inviting you to spend an incredible nine days in Israel with me, General Jerry Boykin, and former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman from June the 2nd through the 12th. You'll discover the roots of your faith and learn from experts about the geopolitical landscape of the region. For more information, visit TonyPerkins.com or call 844-872-5155. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins. Well, you heard him talk about it at the break, but I want to tell you, if you've ever considered a traveling to Israel, or you want to go again, and I've mentioned before, I've been three times. Every trip is life-changing. It enhances your walk in the Christian faith like nothing else you'll experience. You are lucky enough to be able this year to travel to the Holy Land with Tony Perkins, General Jerry Boykin, Michelle Bachman. The dates are June 2nd through the 12th. The Bible will come alive. That is an absolute promise. Visit TonyPerkins.com for more information on that life-changing trip. Well, we're going to continue our discussion with Peter Sprague, our Senior Fellow for Policy Studies, about a second study. Now, this is a study that I am particularly interested with because as a mother of multiple teenagers, you hear often, oh, I will kill myself if you don't say X, Y, Z, or you don't do X, Y, Z. And as concerns gender identity, suicide or suicidal ideations are a bit of the sword of Damocles. They hang over the heads of parents, indicating that it is absolutely necessary for the mental health of the adolescent to submit to these puberty blockers. But does the scientific evidence support it? Let me say that the study headlines, as referenced by major media publications like The Hill, are entirely fatalistic. Puberty blockers could save the lives of trans teens, studies show. So to help me break this down is our Peter Sprague. So let's talk a little bit about what the evidence is and whether or not there is a connection between provision of these puberty blockers and an absence of suicidal ideations. What conclusions can we reach? Well, as you mentioned, uh, there were these uh, flurry of headlines within the last uh, three weeks or so about a a new study just released. Now, this claim is one that's made uh, with regard to the transgender issue uh, very widely, that if you don't allow them to transition, they will uh, commit suicide. Um, But... uh, there was this new study that made this specifically with respect to puberty blockers, which are the uh, medical intervention that is given to young children right at the beginning of puberty to prevent, to stop their normal development, to basically um, halt their normal physical development. Um, and um, th- this ha- can happen with children as young as 11. Um, and so um, this th- these headlines made it sound like, Wow, you know, they're less likely to commit suicide if you give them these puberty blockers, so of course we should do it. Um, Well, so I went and I I thought, 
this is not consistent with what I've read about the other research. So I um, got a copy of the study, which unfortunately you cannot get the entire study for free online. It costs $25. Um, but uh, uh, I got a copy of the full study and read through it. Now, the, the finding that got the headline was one that said, uh, those who received puberty blockers had lower rates of lifetime suicidal ideation. Which is thinking uh, about suicide, okay, not suicidal actually taking I- an act. Right. Suicidal suicide. ideation is thinking about suicide. Now, every, every thought about suicide, every comment about seri- suicide should be taken seriously. Absolutely. I want to emphasize that. But at the same time, normally, uh, those would be considered, uh, reasons for intense psychiatric or psychological intervention, right. not for physical interventions to alter one's normal physiology. Correct. Um, and so uh, I looked at this study and discovered, well, that the reason that got highlighted was because it was considered to be the only finding that was uh, statistically significant okay. um, on all of the measures that they used. But they actually looked at nine different measures of mental health, not just the one. And f- on four of the nine, nearly half, the outcome was worse for kids who went on puberty blockers than mm. for the ones who did not. But those other findings were not statistically significant. But one of those findings really jumped out at me because... Those who took the puberty blockers were actually, according to the raw data, were twice as likely to have had a suicide attempt resulting in inpatient care, meaning that it's so serious that they went to the hospital, uh, they were hospitalized. In the last 12 months, 45.5% of those on the puberty blockers versus 22.8% of those who did not receive the puberty blockers. now, the numbers were so small that, again, this was not statistically significant, so we can't make a definitive conclusion. But the point that I make in this blog post, which was just posted this morning, is um, uh, th- th- there is at least this suggestion that puberty blockers could perhaps increase the risk of suicide. And we, we don't know that for sure, but we also... By no means do we know for sure that it's going to reduce the me- reduce the rate of suicide. Yet that's how the media spun it. Well, of and course. that's how the uh, um, that's how the uh, the impression you would get from reading the abstract and from reading all of the media. Uh, so this is why sometimes the devil is in the details on these studies, yes. and we know much less than what the transgender activists claim we know. Uh, so the next time you, you hear somebody say, oh, you have to let these kids go on puberty blockers, otherwise they will commit suicide, you tell them the evidence does not support that. No. No, in fact, you pointed out, rightly so, in your blog post that the authors acknowledged the study's design didn't take into account causation. It was strictly a coincidental intersection of incidents, one way or the other, the second of which you mentioned there seems to be actually in Increased evidence, though not significant statistically here, that those who go on puberty blockers are more likely, twice as likely, 
to end up in an inpatient facility after a suicide attempt. So really, this was a distinct coloring, not only in the part of the Hill, but NBC News also covered it as well. Puberty blockers linked to lower suicide risk for transgender people. Again, you're so good at very misleading. But again, the devil is in the details, and you you parsed that out for us. To find Peter's blog, go to TonyPerkins.com. We've also got it at FRC.org. Peter, thanks as always for talking to us. And now I get to talk to David Clausen, our Director of Christian Worldview and Biblical Ethics, about an untenable headline in Vice. And let me just tell you, if you think you would ever be surprised by the connection of abortion and religion, today's the day. The argument for abortion as a religious right with the subtitle, the world's largest religion support and sometimes require abortion. David, welcome back to Washington Watch. It's great to be here, Sarah. Okay, wow. It's hard to know how to crack this particular nut because it seems to me from a sheer plain meaning of what the author was writing, that there was a straining to make the conclusion support her original thesis. She really had to stretch, and there are a couple of ideas I have about why that's the case. But in particular, I was struck by the fact that for Christianity's arguable support, I'm using air quotes, for abortion itself, she actually referred to a female minister who clearly has some very progressive views on abortion, leads a pro-abortion coalition. Um, Reverend Zay has offered some commentary here. Katie Zay is her name. She indicated as a follower of Christianity, as a minister of Christianity, to me, the core message is really about love and compassion and care for the neighbor, but also really eliminating systems of oppression, no matter what kind they are. How does that jive with your understanding of the core message of Christianity? Yeah, and that's a great question. And later on in this article, she actually quotes another uh, female ordained minister, Rebecca Todd Peters, who makes the argument, and I'm quoting here, abortion is not a major topic of concern in the church until the late 20th century. And so she's quoting her for support for this idea that it's only recently that evangelical Christianity has adopted a pro-life stance uh, to further political aims and political goals uh, rather than what the Bible actually teaches. And that's simply not true. So tell me, because your excellent publication, which we have also a link to on our site, on biblical ethics itself indicates, ironically enough and perfectly timed for today's segment, a number of indices of the precise disagreement that you have with her claim that abortion wasn't an issue until the late 20th century. But you know that's not right. It's absolutely not right. Yeah, because you read something like that, that abortion's not a major topic of concern until the late 20th century. That's not true. And just a quick survey of Christian history shows that. Going back to the first century in Jewish writings, the Didache, uh, it actually says, um, thou shall not murder, thou shall not commit adultery. Then you go down and it says, thou shall not procure abortion, nor commit infanticide. Thou shall not cover thy neighbor's goods, and it goes on. So as early as the first century, you had early Jewish and Christian writers saying, no, abortion 
abortion is clearly immoral. But then the Christian writers uh, in the last 2,000 years have said the same thing. Athenagoras in the first century, he says, and I'm quote, We say that women who use drugs to bring on an abortion commit murder, for we regard the very fetus in the womb as a created being and therefore an object of God's care. Our Tertullian, about a hundred years later in the third century, says, for, in, for us indeed as homicide is forbidden, it is not lawful to destroy what is conceived in the woman while the blood is still being formed in the man. Uh, two other quick quotes, Basil of Caesarea in the fourth century, we, we just can keep going. He says, whoever deliberately commits abortion is subject to the penalty of homicide. And then fast forward to the 16th century, John Calvin, a famous uh, Protestant reformer, uh, this is a startling quote. He says, quote, The unborn child, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being and should not be robbed of life, uh, of the life which it has not yet to enjoy. And one other quote I'll just throw in there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 1945, To kill the fruit in the mother's womb is to injure the right to life that God has bestowed on the developing life. Wow. So to claim- I mean, you can't get more clear than that. Centuries of evidence indicating that, according to Jewish and Christian orthodoxy, abortion is impermissible. And yet you have two female ministers here indicating that, oh, it's not really been an issue until the late 90s when, in fact, the evangelical Protestant coalition of voters decided we were going to put it at the heart of our voting schematic. And yet we know what those texts actually say. Yeah, so that argument clearly is just uh, intellectually dishonest yes. uh, to claim that the church hasn't spoken to this issue for 2,000 years. But even more important than what theologians or pastors have said about the issue is what God's word has actually said. Yes. And God's word is clear, Sarah, on the personhood of the unborn. Obviously, Psalm 139, verse 13 through 16, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Jeremiah 1, uh, verse 4, for I formed you in the womb. Uh, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Isaiah 49, 1, the Lord called me from the womb. Uh, Job 10, 11, you clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. Luke chapter 1, a pa- Mary and Elizabeth, a powerful affirmation of the person of the unborn. And so again, to, to say the Bible or even uh, those in church history have said nothing to this issue is intellectually dishonest and uh, needs to be called out. Yeah. I would agree. And I also think that the article itself comes from a problematic foundation, which is to treat in the sameness all religions of the world together. In fact, in her efforts to make the conclusion that abortion is religiously justified and even religiously acquired, and again, after three readings of this article, I have yet to find evidence for that assertion. In fact, even when she quotes governing verse from Islam and from the Quran, it's explicitly talking about limitations on abortion, abortion only permissible at a certain time, at a certain gestational age. So to read the headline, abortion is an unfettered right. It is something for which we can make religious arguments. I find a little disingenuous. Do you do you have another concept of why this article might resonate with this year's 
voters. Because in a year, in an election year, pro-life issues obviously are top of mind. We know that based on what's happening at the federal and the state level. Why would this resonate with someone who might be on the fence? It's going to resonate because, and you and I have talked about this before, Sarah, Seven, only 7% of Americans have what can be called a biblical worldview. Mm. So the, that means a lot of our friends and a lot of our neighbors who might even say they're Christians really don't know what God's word says. And we've seen that on the campaign trail. That's why I keep keep bringing up Mayor Pete Buttigieg on the campaign trail. Yes, we talked about that, that last week. making that argument that, oh, because life begins with breath, uh, Christians should support abortion. And it's fundamentally not true. Correct. And that's why Christians, and especially pastors, need to be teaching this to their congregations. So when you hear that nonsense out there on the campaign trail or in an article like this, we know what the Word of God actually says, and we can respond faithfully. It's a dangerous tactic to use the Word of God as an excuse for something in which there is no text proof. God's very clear. He doesn't want us to have to guess. And his word provides plenty of support for the personhood of the unborn. David Clausen has been my excellent guest today. A reminder to go to his great publication at FRC.org, Biblical Principles for Pro-Life Engagement. You can also find that at TonyPerkins.com. This has been Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Friday afternoon. A reminder to go to our podcast. We'll have plenty of resources from all the smart people you heard from today. We'll see you again on Monday on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234.